The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. Before we come to time of talking together of God's Word, looking at Romans chapter 12, I want us to take just a moment in prayer, giving thanks to the Lord for all of His goodness to us, especially this morning as we celebrate Mother's Day. Uh, but just to also pray, uh, I was debating whether to say anything, but Tim Pittsburgh came to me and uh, just said, we don't have all the information, but just to be praying, the beauty of God is he has all the information and in things, so we can just kind of pray uh, uninformed, but trusting that he's informed. Um, a family was affected last night as they were coming home from the track meet, uh, state track meet from Bluffton, and there was an accident, and we're not sure who be it a parent or a child, but someone was in a fatal accident and that uh, the other individual is in critical care. So I looked at the island packet, we searched it, don't know who they are. But it's just as a reminder today, the fleeting nature of life. We don't know and we're not promised that you're going to make it to your brunch today. You don't know that what's going to happen. It says that all of life is a vapor, that we're here for a moment and then gone. But the one thing that we do know is that God is fully trustworthy. That he knows the end from the beginning and our days and all about us. And so we can trust him in the middle of it all. So let's go to the Lord and give thanks, but also to ask for comfort for those who are suffering today in so many different ways. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning and we do give you praise. It is a day, at least within our culture, of celebration of our moms, of our mothers, those who cared for us, those either as our birth mothers or foster mothers or adoptive mothers, gave of themselves sacrificially to love us and to care for us. Father, yet in their imperfection, there are wounds that were caused, but we can still celebrate today that you are good and we ask your blessing upon those even in our midst now who are mothers. Would you bless them and encourage them in their incredible ministry? One which, at least in our culture, receives uh, so little attention and affirmation as being important. But Father, we pray for these moms and grandmoms who love well, who direct their children to the beauty of the gospel, who try each and every day by the power of the Spirit to live as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to their God. I pray that their work and that their sacrifice would not be in vain, but would you would use it, and that they would see the fruit of even conversion in the lives of their children, the fruit of a godly life. And Father, would you strengthen them. For others in our congregation who desperately want to be a mother, but yet you have withheld that from them, Father, would they be at peace, and would they know and trust that for whatever reason, within the mind of God, they have not been given that. And would they find their comfort and solace in you? And would you give them significant ministry even into the lives of others? And Father, for some here who have experienced the loss of a child, the brokenness of a mother's heart to attend a funeral of their child, Father, would you be their great peace and comfort? And would this day not bring only sadness, but the memories of great joy and the hope of one day seeing their loved ones again in Christ. So, Father, we bless you today. 
and we praise you. We also ask for those who are suffering today, this family from Bluffton and others, that you would be near to them. And in the moments where our mortality is brought to the forefront, would we pause and would we ask deep and profound questions of eternity that we would know you, that we would be sure of these things, that we would not wait until tomorrow to make decisions about eternity, for we are not promised tomorrow, but we are promised you today. And we pray that we would flee and run to you with all that we have and to Christ, who is our Savior. Now, by the power of your Spirit, would you come and teach us through your word, open the depths and the profound nature of the mystery of the gospel to us, that we would not only know it, but we would then live it out. To Christ be the glory. Amen. We've been moving through the book of Romans, this letter considered the most important letter ever written in all of history. That Paul is writing, and I've said incorrectly, I remember a couple of times over the last months that he wrote this from Rome. He wrote it from Corinth. And he was writing to the church at Rome where he hadn't been. And he was writing and encouraging them on the truths of the gospel and of the the depth uh, of this theology, uh, of this doctrine uh, of who God is in who we are in Christ. That he was exclaiming and presenting his confidence that he says that he was not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ for it is the power of God for salvation and to the Jew first, and then to the Greek. That he went into the depths of the fall and the depths of judgment, but yet the beauty and the excellencies of justification by faith alone in Christ alone, that we are declared, it is a legal declaration of those who are Christians, that we are now righteous before this incredible judge, who then he begins to teach, is also our Father, that we cry out, Abba, Father. And so this judge is transformed right in front of us, and his, his slap on the desk and says, not guilty. And then he looks at us with tender affection and says, my son or daughter, come and find your rest. What an awesome picture that happens. We've plumbed into the depths of God's relationship with his people Israel and now come out in chapter 12 dealt with all that we would call the indicative, the truths, the the declarative things, and now taking those and saying now to the imperative. Now take these truths and apply them to your life. Don't be like the young person in the home uh, that the parent gives an instruction and the response always and undoubtedly from the child is, I know, I got it. And you walk upstairs or you walk into the playroom or you walk into the uncut backyard and you say, I thought you said you had it. Oh, you meant to actually do it. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought I just was supposed to listen to you and know what you wanted me to do. I didn't know you actually wanted me to do it. Now, how childish and adolescent. But oh, that's the church today. Oh, oh God, you actually wanted me to live these things out. Oh, you wanted me to to shape my life as if you truly are the God of the universe who does not look likely on people rebelling against him. Oh, you are the God who sent your son into the world to fully take on your justice and then give to me your grace and righteousness through your son. You want me to not just know that with intellectual assent, 
but you want me to appropriate that so that it actually bears itself out in my life? Oh! And then Paul says, I appeal to you. I beg you, don't let this remain intellectual to you. Don't let this remain only doctrinal to you. But take these truths, press them into your hearts, and begin to live it out. Because he would say, he didn't say it necessarily right there in chapter 12, but he said other places, if you don't, then my only conclusion is that you don't believe chapters 1 to 11 to be true. Because you only know a tree by its fruit. And you only know a Christian by the fruit that he or she bears within their life. And so if there is no fruit at all, it's hard then to say that you really are a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ. And for some of us, that's a huge challenge. Our lives do not represent the things that we say that they believe. If you say that you're married, you can't date other people. Sorry, you just can't. If you say uh, that you're on a diet, you got to pass by Baskin-Robbins. Sorry. You just have to, or else you're really not on a diet. That's okay, but you're just not on a diet. And it's okay if you want to date other people. Just don't get married. And God's saying, if you want to be a follower of mine, you can't go do all these other things and follow after all these other gods and be all these other things. It's different than that. And Paul, last week, as we were in chapter 12, he began to apply these truths. So if you have your Bible, open it, and we're going to read together chapter 12. We're going to focus, though, today on verses 3, 4, and 5, but we'll read the entirety of it. So this is God's very word. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body you have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in portion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayers, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to God what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. 
To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but come overcome evil with good. Let's pray. Father, we come now and ask that you would bless the reading and the hearing of your word. Teach us, we pray, as your servants listen. Amen. Last week, we talked about a living sacrifice, about what does it mean to be transformed by the word of the Lord, to be moved and metamorphosized, he says, from the inside out, that the world conforms us by the outside in and looks for external change to then move inward. But the gospel is contrary to the world, and it says there's going to be a change within your heart. There's going to be a change within your very thinking about who you are, and it will then work its way out. Social experiment called college shows that young individuals raised within good moral homes, by and large, when those outward trappings of morality and the external pressures of family, expectation, life, spiritual and faith communities are removed and they're placed together with 15 or 20 or 100,000 other young people, you find who they really are. And for some, they walk the walk because that's truly who they are. But for others, what you realize is the external pressures are gone and the true inward self comes out. You find the same thing on business trips. You find the same thing in Las Vegas. What's the slogan of Vegas? What happens in Vegas? Because what Vegas has realized is this. Hey, if we can get you to Vegas and remove all of the external pressures of expectation of spouse of expectation of faith community, expectation of anything, then the true self comes out. And what we know about the true self is you don't want anybody outside of the other 49 states knowing about it, so we'll market it that way. How beautiful and powerful and sad and damning. And it's sad within even Christian circles that some of the highest rates of use of pornography in hotels and convention centers around the United States or when pastors have conventions. Because you're not around. No one knows what's going on in private. But Paul says, no, the gospel takes root and changes us from the inside out. It affects us. And it has to affect how we approach all of life, not part of life. It doesn't affect just a little bit of life, but it affects the totality of life, of how we enjoy sports, how we enjoy our families, how we conduct ourselves in school, how we conduct ourselves in business. Francis Schaeffer spoke in 1976 at the Lausanne Conference for World Evangelization, and he was using this point and was talking and saying, take the gospel... And take the truth of the scripture and see how it affects your thinking. And he presented this, and you don't have to agree with it or not, but he said this. If you read in the Old Testament about generosity, or if you read in the Old Testament and the New Testament, you're not going to find much, if any, teaching on property rights, on what you should do with property. But you will find an awful lot of teaching on generosity. And so what we should do as Christians is to begin to ask the question, not, oh, hey, this is great. God hasn't really taught much on property rights and how I should use these things. But we should think about generosity. 
and how we should apply it. And what Schaefer said was this, if the Christian businessman or businesswoman who owns a business as an employer took these principles of generosity down and started to think through their implications, what they would come to is this assessment. I can take less profit out of my business and then share that profit with my employees. And that would be a better use of my wealth than for me to take out more profit and to then give it to a foundation or to a charitable organization. That it's more godly to do it that way. That it would speak more highly of the gospel in that way because what he recognized and what he was doing was he was taking the Old Testament gleaning laws. You know them, right? Leviticus and all that kind of good stuff. Deuteronomy of, oh, well, business owners in those days didn't have manufacturing per se. It was an agrarian culture, so they had fields. And what God said of the gleaning laws was this. You, even though you own the field, you do not get to keep all of the profit. And so you should leave grain on the edges so that those who are less fortunate than you can come and glean Go to Ruth and Boaz and the story of Ruth and Boaz. That's the picture of it. And what Francis Schaeffer was saying was if Christians would think about the implications of their faith, even within business, it may say to them, I do not need the government to debate minimum wage. My generosity is not going to be dictated by a pagan government. But my generosity will be driven by me taking every thought captive and bringing this down to be transformed by the inside and saying this, I don't need so much profit. I'm going to let other people have it. I'm going to leave gleanings for them. And so government, thank you for $7.25 an hour. But I think that's nuts. And I'm going to be a man or a woman in business who blesses and is more generous, not because I have to, but because I've thought through the implications of the gospel and of my theology within even the context of my business world. And some of you are going, preacher, you're moving from preaching to meddling. And you don't have to agree with me. But that's just one place that you could apply it. I read uh, a sermon by John Piper, pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, or former pastor. He said he took chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 to heart, and it changed even the way he played cards with his children and friends and his wife. Because I always wondered, and I've asked sometimes, should we pray for certain teams to win? Obviously, my prayers didn't matter. The Panthers lost, the Tar Heels lost, and the Tigers lost. So, uh, but what Piper said was his prayer after studying And thinking through the implications of chapter 12, 1 and 2, was he prayed this way, Lord, don't not, Lord, help me win this game of cards. But Lord, would you determine whoever it would matter to most and be most effective and best for it that they win this and would I accept your will in that? Now, he still competed. He still wanted to win, but he played for a different purpose and a different cause. And you think, what? It's just saying, if you believe the gospel, how far are you allowing it to penetrate and infiltrate into your life, even down to the manner in which you celebrate or play or compete? Most of us, and some of you are sitting there going, that's nuts. That is such preacher talk. That's why I'm not a preacher. I just want to play cards. But do we play cards for the glory of God? 
You see, as one writer put it, to be a living sacrifice is not just, as a lot of people say, Christians living good lives. Well, sure, they do that, but a lot of other people live good lives. Therefore, the essence of being a Christian isn't living a good life, though a Christian is not less than that. A Christian, of course, will live a good life. It's the reason, it's the power, it's the living sacrifice, it's the ending up, a giving up of your rights to self-determination that transforms you from the inside out. It's not just about doing good things, but it's about what's happening within you that's motivating you to do those good things and live for Christ. And now Paul takes this teaching about, okay, we're going to be transformed from the inside out. We're going to now begin to look at opportunities and places where this can be applied. And the very first place he began to apply it was the church. I find that fascinating. I wonder if it's because he considered the church the most messed up place that needed some tuning. Or I think it was more this. The church has the most powerful opportunity to influence the world. And therefore we need to get it right how we live together through the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Folks, we are not a social club and we are not a civic organization. We are a group of people brought together by the purchased blood of Jesus Christ, connected together in him and through him as a living organism with a mission and a purpose and a value that is different from any other mission, purpose, and value of any other organization in all of the world. Because the purpose of this is that we come together to declare the glories and the excellencies of God to the world around us. And you know what the world's doing? It's looking It's looking at us and seeing how we're living. Not only living it out in your individual lives, but living it out together here as a church. That's where Paul begins. And what we see in this are several simple things. One, there is a goal. He said there's a goal to applying it here. And the goal of the church and the goal of applying it to the church is this. He wants to see unity through diversity. He wants to see the church coming together unified as one body, as one organism, as one group, but yet incredibly diverse. Then he presents to us, but there's a problem that's impeding our ability to accomplish this goal, to attain this goal. And then, of course, he gives us a solution of what do we do with it. So first, the goal, verses 4 and 5, unity through diversity. For as in one body you have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. So just a few things. They're very simple, and they're very obvious, but it's important to understand. First, there's one body. We are one body. We are one church. The church is a singular organism that we are connected together in this by Christ. But it is one organism. And that's why when we say within the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, that we believe in the church Catholic, the universal church. We believe that we're connected. I'm thrilled that Jeff Cranston is out preaching at Low Country Church today. I'm thrilled that Todd Cullen is preaching at Hilton Head Island Community. That Matthew Palmer is preaching the gospel at Grace Community Church here on the island. I'm thrilled that these guys are doing it. They're not my enemies and they're not our competition, folks. They're just not. The cults are. 
the world around us, that's the competition and that's the enemy. But not other churches who are communicating the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're one body and we celebrate one another. I get together with those guys and have meals and and prayer together and play golf together. And people are surprised by that. They're not our enemy. We're one body together. And there's one head of this body, Paul says later in 1 Corinthians. But here he says there's one head and it's Christ. That we gain our marching orders from one person and one person only. And it's not me. It's not the elders of this church. We are subordinate to one, and we're subordinate to Christ. And the moment that you see us and me stepping out of accord with what Christ has clearly dictated within his scriptures, there needs to be a change of leadership within the church. Because Christ is the head of the church. Bill McCutcheon isn't. I do not have the freedom uh, on my whim to do things. I do not have the power and the authority to do things generated out of what I want to do. But I have to take everything and submit it to Christ who is the head. That the elders of the church take their, their ideas, submit them to Christ the head. And we follow Christ as the head. People ask me from time to time, Bill, what's the essential difference between the Protestant church and the Catholic church? And this is one of the essential differences. We believe Christ is the head of the church, no man. The Pope is a wonderful man, but he's a man. And he is not equal with or above God in his dictates. And so we as a church say Christ is our head. And you know what that means? If Christ is the head, you might want to know what he has to say. Study what he has to say about the church and study what he has to say about the rules and the regulations and the beauty and the mission and the values and all of those things of the church because they come from Christ. And we learn from him. If Christ is our head and he was willing to sacrifice himself fully for the church, we learn how it is that we should live. So one body, one head, many parts. The church has many synchronized parts and members within it. Just look around. Just take a second. Look around. You can't look at Really, come on, guys. <laughs> look around you. This is the many parts of the body of Christ. And there were people here earlier today. And it's the many parts of the body of Christ with all your unique giftedness, all your unique special talents, with all your stories brought together, at least here at Hilton Head Presbyterian. But then you go and you take all the other component parts of gospel-believing churches uh, that come together and we say, it is all of us with our unique differences, many parts working together in unison. And that within those parts, there are many gifts And we're going to talk about some of those gifts next week. But there's a giftedness, and I want you to hear this more than anything else today. God has uniquely gifted you. You didn't get passed over. You're not like the parent uh, at Christmas where all the kids have six million gifts and you've got two. And then it kind of comes around and you're like, oh, you can go on by me. I don't have any more. That one got me a gift. And you just sort of feel like, oh, well, whatever. God didn't forget you. He's given you a gift at least, but most likely many gifts. And he's given them to you to use. And your gift is your gift. It's not the person sitting next to you's gift. And so you don't have to worry about what the person next to you has as a gift. And think that maybe you wish you had their gift because their gift was cooler than your gift. Their gift was sexier than your gift. Their gift is a fun gift. They get to go up front and get to speak and be a preacher. That's a cool gift. 
Or you think, man, this guy or woman gets the gift of this or that. But what you see is these many gifts, there are many functions of those gifts. That the church has many component parts. And you function differently in order to accomplish the ultimate task. I hear from people pretty regularly, man, I couldn't do what you do. I couldn't get up and preach every Sunday and do this. And I look at them very often and say, but I can't do what you do. I'm not great at this or that, but you are. And I'm so thankful that you have your gift and that I have my gifts and that together we have a fuller orb sense of what God's called us to do. Some of you have gifts of service. I was talking to somebody this morning after the first service, and she said to me, don't ever call on me to do anything up front. But you can ask me to do anything else, and I'll do it behind the scenes. She knew who she was. She knew her giftedness, and she wasn't ashamed by it, but was saying it's different from yours. For you see, we have this one body with one head and many parts with many gifts, with many functions, all connected together through Christ. He says, you are individually members one of another. You realize that, right? So guess what that means? Figure out how to get along. You're stuck with each other. Into eternity. Look around again. It's pretty good to figure it out now. Well, he says, you are actually, it's even more profound that he said, you are more connected together through the blood of Christ than you even are with your familial bloodlines. That Christ's blood surpasses human blood. That I am more connected to you than I am even to my own family. It's amazing, the reality of that truth. And that we are all working together to accomplish the mission of the church, which is simply this, to know Christ and to make him known. That's our purpose and function, to know Christ, that we're all working to know him so well, chapters 1 through 11, to know who he is so that we can then make him known to the world through the manner in which we live and do and breathe and have our being. That's the goal of the church, unity through diversity, Some people have narrowly defined diversity as racial or socioeconomic. I would love to see us be more racially diverse and socioeconomically diverse, but that isn't what I see diversity to be. I see diversity to be bringing together people who would not normally be brought together under one single banner because Christ has called them to be together. And folks, we have that here in our midst. We have that here, and we need to celebrate it. So that's the goal. Well, what's the problem? You want to know the problem? You. And me. Because he says here, ultimately, the problem is pride. The problem is, verse 3, For by grace given to me, I say to everyone among you. Paul's saying, listen, I'm going to say something hard. And you're going to have to listen to it. Do not think of yourself more highly than he ought to. But to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Why did Paul see the need to say, don't think too highly of yourself? It's not complex. The reason he said that was because people were thinking too highly of themselves. What I do isn't rocket science, folks. 
Why would Paul have said that? Oh, probably Paul would say that because he saw that the problem within the church is people were arrogant and boastful and haughty and prideful. And that they looked down upon other people's gifts and they thought theirs were more special. They thought a little bit too much of themselves that they were indispensable to the work of Christ and that they would condemn and crush other people and not associate with other people because other people didn't have their same giftedness and didn't look the same way that they did and weren't like them. Paul was saying the greatest danger that we have within the church is pride, that we make ourselves feel better by diminishing the role and the function and the giftedness of those around us. You see, pride centers on self rather than on others and the needs of others and the wants and the desires of others. And you may go, well, Bill, I'm, I'm not a prideful person at all. I, I, I actually, I think I got passed over. Everyone else is better than me. See, that person has the gift of being a party giver. They give pity parties all the time. Because you see, the flip side of pride, but the same coin, is pity and self-pity. Because self-pity is unrealized pride. I should have gotten that, but I didn't. I'm better than this. I deserved a better gift than this. Do you see the pride? But I didn't get it. No one acknowledged my gifts. No one said, add a boy to me. No one did this. I should have. It's still all about you, isn't it? A pity party is all about you. One of the few things that I learned as a parent uh, was what to do with a crying child that was just throwing a pity party temper tantrum. And what I learned from Dr. James Dobson was this, step over them and move on to another room. Because what they're doing is saying, hey, I'm the center of the universe over here. I'm not getting my way. I'm having a little pity party and you're invited. I want you to come. And what you have to say to people who throw pity parties is this, Really? Get over it. Get over yourself. That's what Paul's saying. Get over yourself. You wanted the gift. You wanted an extraordinary gift, a charismatic gift, and you were given the gift of service. Oh, but I wanted his gift. How come she got that gift? Paul's saying, you see, pride comes in a mixture of the, the straight arrogance but the not so, it's a little bit harder to determine because who's going to stand and crush a self-pity person? You come across as rude and terrible, but they're the same thing. You see, Paul says that the problem with our pride is that our judgment is impaired. He uses the language of sobriety. He says you should be of sober judgment because what he's saying is this, is that our problem with pride is that we are under the influence of a foreign substance, that we are being influenced by something else and that it's affecting our faculties. We're not thinking correctly and that we need to come under the authority. In Ephesians chapter 5, he says, you should not be drunk with wine. You shouldn't come under its authority and your faculties be impaired by that, but you should be drunk on the Holy Spirit is what he was saying. You should become under the faculties uh, or the, uh, the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, Paul is urging us not to be under the influence of anything other than God. Because when we're under the influence of self or of the world, we forget the source of our giftedness. We believe that every good and perfect gift comes from within. That we think, hey, I'm pretty daggum special. 
And they're pretty lucky to have me around. Instead of what James says, do not be deceived. Do not be, in, 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 excuse me, do not be influenced improperly by somebody else. But every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation and no shadow due to change. You see, we forget where our giftedness comes from. We forget our purpose and our function. It is true that each of us has a unique gift and a part to play within the work and the mission of the church. But we take this truth and we go and we extrapolate it out to think that we're indispensable for the work of Christ. And we think that God has to have us in order to get done what he's going to get done. As I walk out of my bedroom at my house, there's a prayer from John Wesley. And it says simply this, I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will, put me to doing, put me to suffering, let me be employed for you or put aside for you, exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours, so be it. And this covenant now made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. And what I'm reminded of every single time I walk out of my bedroom is that maybe God's ultimate purpose for Bill McCutcheon is to set me aside. As Paul said, to pour me out as a drink offering. To lay me low or to lay me aside. You see, that's an incredible assault against my ego and against my pride. And it is incredibly sobering to read. Another great man of the faith, John Newton, wrote this. If two angels were to receive at the same moment a commission from God, one to go down and rule earth's grandest empire, the other to go and to sweep the streets of its meanest village, it would be a matter of entire indifference to each which service fell to his lot, the post of a ruler or the post of a scavenger, for the joy of the angels lies only in obedience to God's will. Folks, If your ultimate source of happiness and delight is through the honor and glory of God to use you however he would with whatever giftedness he's given you to whatever measure of faith he's given it to you, if that is your ultimate glory and your ultimate goal and your ultimate motivating factor in all that you do, it doesn't matter what gifts you were given. Or how well you're acknowledged within the church or not acknowledged within the church. Or if anybody knows your name or doesn't know your name. But we have turned the church into into an idol factory. Where we create the best Bible teachers and the best pastors. And the coolest model. and, And the next best thing. And we think that we've got to be on the front cover of church now. And today and women's ministry today, and Presbyterian cool young guys with cool glasses and cool tats and all the cool stuff, and we want to be all of this that we are, and we forget that it doesn't matter as long as God is glorified. We forget to remember who we are 
in Christ. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice for you all. Paul got it, didn't he? Paul got it, but he had to keep wrestling it down. So we'll end with then, that's the problem. The problem is our pride is right in the middle of it. The solution is this, humility, bridging it already. It's proper thinking. It's being reminded through prayers like that of John Wesley, of words like Newton, of the words of Paul, that it's a matter of thinking, of being transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we don't want to think too highly of ourselves or think too low of ourselves. We simply want to think of ourselves less. Quit thinking about yourself so much. Quit having you at the center of the equation and the center of your universe. The beauty of what happens when we come to Christ is that we are displaced. If you're here today and you're investigating Christianity, I want to be perfectly clear. Christ doesn't want to come alongside you as your co-pilot in life. He is taking over the cockpit and you are being ejected out of control. And that he is saying, I'm now the captain. I'm now the king. I'm now the one on the throne. I am displacing you. And you know what our egotistical, maniacal, human fallen hearts say? Oh, that's awesome. I love being displaced. Right? No, you fight against it with every part of who you are. But the solution to that is to keep coming back. Keep coming back. For in Psalm 73, David wrote, I was about to fall away. I was about to die. I didn't understand the world around me. I thought too highly of myself until I went into the sanctuary of God. And what I found was his perspective. And so we come back and we take our thinking and our perception of the world and we constantly bring it back to the Lord. We bring it back to his word. For we cannot gain insight into ourselves until you first consider who God is. John Calvin in the Institutes of Christian Religion wrote that man in the eye of man seems incredibly perceptive when it looks around and it perceives the world around him. But only when man looks up are the imperfections and the limitations of his own natural sight exposed. For when he stares at the sun, he realizes that he has no capacity to see at all. And it's the same with humanity in relation to God. That if we're just going to stare at each other, we're going to think that we have a good perception. But it's only when we look up into who God is and we catch a glimmer and a glimpse of his glory and his excellencies and who we are in him and what has happened to us in him and therefore what has happened to everyone else who is in Christ that we then look down and I gain a different perspective of who you are. All of a sudden you're honored to me because you are valuable enough for the blood of Jesus Christ. I'm humbled to be in your presence with your giftedness because I know that the giftedness that you have is a gift from God Almighty and that if I was to somehow diminish you, I'm diminishing him. I'm humbled to know and to believe that if God could do a work within me, then he could do a work within you that fast. And I can't stand over you in arrogance or pride, but I come along and with great humility approach you and honor your life because I've looked upon him And I've looked upon the cross. 
and the great equalizer that it is. Oh, that's how it begins to change. Quit considering yourself so much and consider Christ a little bit more. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Folks, he will exalt you one day. And it'll be a glorious day. But for this day, we serve the gifts that we have in the body of Christ that he's given us here at the church. We celebrate and honor all those who are around us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your rich mercies to us in Christ Jesus. That we who deserve no giftedness at all, and we who have regularly wasted the giftedness that you've given us on other things, you keep giving us your spirit. You keep drawing us and inviting us back. So I pray now that today you would comfort those who need comforting, that you would encourage those, that you would humble some, and that may be a a difficult task. But would you love us enough to humble us? For you say that you reject the prideful and the arrogant. So God, we pray that you would do your work in us and that we at the church, at least here at Hilton Head Presbyterian Church, we would live well together, celebrating one another, encouraging and building up and not worrying about our own reputation but only the reputation of our King and Head, Christ himself. To him be the glory in all things. Amen.